I like to request your attention with some um, uh, considerations, thoughts. Uh, tonight, the topic, or the theme basically is about the teachings on anatta, not self, or anattata, the not selfness, if you want. Um, as you may be aware, this is the Buddhism is full of complicated topics, easily misunderstood, uh, very confusing concepts, well intended but inept teachers who make a mess of it. Um, and there are many such teachings in Buddhism and the teaching of Anatata is uh, particularly prone to be confusing and uh, be made a mess of. And I'm trying to add a little bit to this mess tonight <laughs> by um, giving you my current state of understanding, unfermented and unleavened as it may be. I've been living with this teaching for a number of years and have uh, had the treacherous uh, experience of being confident that I have finally understood what it means and I, I'd be passionate to share my latest errors with you. <laughs> Let me um, start with explaining where some of the confusion comes from. Some of the confusion comes from the, the fact that the Buddha had to teach, in, like all teachers, um, the Buddha had to teach in the time and within the conceptual frameworks people were familiar with to uh, outline and identify his vision and his, uh, um, his understanding that followed his breakthrough. And to be able to convey some of that breakthrough, um, you know, three things are needed. You need to, A, have a breakthrough, which is rare enough, but then, uh, B, you need to have the skill to actually outline the dynamics that have led to that breakthrough. That's the second. Already that is rare that the first and the second coincide. And then you need to actually have the gift of being able to didactically and pedagogically convey that understanding of your own breakthrough in terms that people who have not yet had such a breakthrough are capable of understanding and if they're not understanding it are willing to keep listening to you know which in the case of the buddha fortuitously falls together you know we we are here not just because this man had a breakthrough uh, I'm very grateful that he had that breakthrough, but the truth be spoken, in many ways I'm more admiring of his capacity to actually convey of what he had the breakthrough of. And I would be uh, surprised if not many people had had a similar breakthrough and we simply don't know about them because they have not had his gifts in conveying that understanding and passing it on and having the social organizational skills to get this thing off the ground. Yeah. And in his person, we had that. So we're f in many ways fortunate to have a substantial body of teachings 
um, endless, a huge corpus of texts, living traditions, all conveniently in disagreement about various areas, uh, giving us a sense of deep richness and um, a plethora of possible alleyways into the nerve or the major throng of his uh, of his message. Uh, this teaching on Anattata uh, has to be understood first of all on the background of the Vedic and Upanishadic teaching. As you will uh, appreciate, the Vedic teaching has taken two approaches to liberation. One is to arrive at an eternal soul, an eternal Atman. And this Atman has had three major characteristics. Um, I totally simplify. If you happen to be a Vedantic scholar in here, then uh, for, please forgive me for not just my ignorance, but also my boldness in simplifying a complex and many faceted religious tradition that's been going on for about two and a half millennia, uh, three and a half millennia. Yeah. So that Atman at the time of the Buddha had three major uh, characteristics. One of them, it was eternal. One of them, it was absolutely powerful. And one of them was that it was perfect. It was completely blissful and it was throughout uh, sukha. It was um, an experience of profound pleasantness. Yeah. So in terms of the Vedic tradition, this was nitya, this was sukha, and this was atman. And uh, if you are familiar with the three characteristics that uh, are one of the few uh, solemnly objective statements the Buddha makes, then you notice that they are precisely the opposite of a Vedic Atman. Yeah? All conditioned things are impermanent. Um, they are laced with an experience of unsatisfactoriness. They are Dukkha and they are impersonal. They are Anatta. So you see that the Buddha's teaching on these three characteristics completely juxtaposes the qualities of a Vedic Atman. So the teaching of Anattata, in many ways, is uh, a round uh, denial of the uh, affirmation that comes from the Vedic tradition that the core of human experience is an unchanging, blissful, and uh, absolutely powerful essence. Yeah. The Buddha shifting quasi from ontology to psychology says look everything that you find in your experience is changing there is nothing absolute in there because it is conditioned it hinges on preconditions it is contingent on other things so it is not absolutely powerful and it's changing it's not eternal and it's not yours you don't own it even if you um, as an act of the most obvious form of appropriation, even if you eat it, you can't keep it. Yeah? So, in many ways, this teaching is not just, I say the opposite of what my previous tr religious tradition said. It is a shift of perspective. When the Vedic tradition is interested in essences, in big questions of what, yeah, if you want it philosophically, this is called quiditas. Yeah, it has 
preoccupied philosophers uh, for millennia, Buddhist teaching is not interested in that what. What is the soul? Is the soul identical with the body or not? Is, uh, is an awakened being eternal or not? Uh, Buddhist teaching is interested very, very squarely in the how of things, not in the what of things. It's interested how things work. It's interested in how somebody who is perfectly capable of being happy arrives at suffering. So this teaching <coughs> on anatta is one of the few things that the Buddha is in, in strong disagreement with his uh, immediate context. And um, obviously this was, did not go down easily. Uh, even amongst his own disciples there were considerable uh, challenges to be overcome. While uh, these challenges have not changed in many ways, we, we have a slightly different ballgame, as I hope to outline in a moment, but Anatata remains th probably the most challenging of the three characteristics to understand. In many ways it's easily said why. Uh, if Anidja, impermanence, is a perception, it doesn't take a great depth of realization that things change, it takes a little more um, guts to acknowledge that not just the stuff out there changes actually, but the stuff, the apparent experiencing subject also changes. That gets a little closer to the bone. But it's hard to really fault such a statement. I'm Anybody who is reasonably observant and reasonably willing to pay attention will find out that things do change. It's not a profound realization. Yeah. To what extent we let that in is another question, but nobody really claims that things don't change. The teaching on Dukkata, on uh, the unsatisfactoriness and the fact that our life is laced with forms of pain, frustration, disappointment, um, lack of meaning, agony, uh, whatever brand of dukkha, there are many brand of dukkha, the term is a lot broader as the English term suffering would convey, that teaching also is in the profound realization. It's actually something we all feel. However powerful a privilege your life is, you will have experienced forms of pain, dukkha, and disappointment, unsatisfactoriness. Um, again, the question of the depth of that realization is another one. Some people say, yeah, there are bad things in this world, but you know, right now it feels good and give me more strawberries and then I'm happy. Yeah? So uh, to acknowledge that we are experiencing this ex quality of dukkha in all of the dimensions of our life, however successful we may be, however healthy, however loved, however wealthy we may be, um, is another question altogether. You know? But nobody... I know, claims that there is no such thing. Yeah. Again, in terms of Buddhist psychology, dukkha is a, is a Vedana quality of which uh, you have heard this morning. They are, we are Vedana beings. We don't have a choice. Some things we do have choices. About having Vedana, we don't have choices. We only have a choice how honest we're going to be. And we have a choice what we're going to do after we experience Vedana. If they are pleasant, we tend to think we are the recipients. Yeah? If they are unpleasant, we tend to think we are the victims. Yeah? And we then uh, 
strategize to either get more of the pleasant ones or get less of the unpleasant ones or blame somebody for producing the unpleasant ones for us. There's much of outsourcing around Vedana. Yeah? <laughs> the third of the characteristics, Anatata, is tricky because it actually doesn't make sense on a, on a cognitive level unless you have some meditative experience. Um, there's no way that you can cognitively understand imp impersonality if your perceptual understanding or conceptually understand impersonality if perceptually it feels like me. Yeah. Now, as long as you don't meditate, it's very difficult to get enough perspective on your perceptual reification process that you actually ac acknowledge this taking place. And as long as you don't have this perceptual experience of impersonality, that it's possible to think without there being a thinker, very simply. Um, that there's nobody home. You know. Unless you have that as a perceptual experience, no amount of cognitive gymnastics will do the job of being liberating. Yeah. So that's why anatata is a more tricky. It already is, to some degree, a realization experience. So it's neither a perception, nor is it a Vedana. It's a Pativeda aspect. It's already, to some degree, a realization experience. And that makes it very difficult as a sales point. Yeah? If you want to peddle Buddhism to your friends and uh, family, then anatta is a, is a lead balloon. Yeah? <laughs> you don't start off there. If you want to fail, don't, don't try it. People want to be affirmed and validated. It is quite challenging, although logically it is quite easily understandable what the Buddha says, that in the five dimensions of our experience, you know, form, anything that can be reified, um, Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, and uh, indifferent feeling tone, perception, uh, mind formations, uh, sense consciousness, in all of these five famous khandhas, by the way, footnote here, these khandhas are the tool to help us understand anatata. This is the major tool by which we can understand anatata. And the Buddha does not tire pointing out that anything ex that is experienced within the realm of those five khandhas, in Tibetan tankas, they are depicted as five skulls. Yeah? If you think of Yama holding, this, holding the mirror, in his tiara there are five skulls. Uh, signifying that anything experienced within the realm of the five khandhas is death-bound, yeah, is mortal, is changing. So the Buddha points out and says, look, how would you want to arrive at a self? Now, we're speaking of a self in a Vedic uh, kind, a self that is permanent and powerful, a self that is happy and a self that is lasting. How would you want to create such a self on the basis of things that change, of things that don't belong to you, of things that are contingent on other things? It's very easy, logically, it's very easy to understand that anything I can experience does not offer enough of a foundation for such a self. However, uh, that doesn't really do justice to the problem. The problem is a psychological one. We have considerable psychological resistance against acknowledging this. Yeah. While the logic is quite 
you can't make anything permanent out of, out of impermanent stuff. You can't make anything happy out of stuff that hurts. And you can't make anything of a true substance and essence, a core of your true being, out of stuff that doesn't belong to you. Yeah, that's easily enough understood. However, that doesn't do really justice to our attempts to create such a self. I want to tell you, if you find this difficult, that you're not alone. And I want to tell you a little story of uh, a very short text in here. <coughs> I, you, you, you are hopefully grateful that I choose a short text. As you can imagine, there are substantially longer texts in here. So I would like to be given credit for that. Um, <laughs> there is a gentleman in here, um, and this gentleman is called Chana. Um, we are told that this man is identical with the charioteer of the Buddha, who uh, was about of his age and who was part of the Buddha's outings, his famous outings, uh, that led him to identify his existential situation and that finally led to his going forth. Yeah, leaving the home. Um, Chana is, so we are told by the commentaries, a difficult character. On account of his closeness to the Buddha, he uh, thought of himself quite uh, special. And he, uh, there were a number of accounts where he was in difficulties with his monastic community. He later, after the Buddha, he joined also the monastic order. And uh, he seems to have had a hard time in monastic life. And he was rebuked on several accounts. And even on uh, the Buddha's deathbed, he, the Buddha imposed a penalty on him. And that penalty consisted of, it's actually the only place this is penalty is mentioned as far as I'm aware. The, the Buddha uh, imposed the penalty of, uh, it's a kind of ostracism. So his fellow monks were not allowed to talk to him. Um, and... Our text takes place shortly of after the Buddha's death. And our friend Jana is living in uh, Benares, uh, near Benares, 15 kilometers outside, um, and is seeking for instruction. And he is given uh, such instruction Quite tersely, let me read you uh, the O-tone. On one occasion, a number of bhikkhus were dwelling in Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. Then, in the evening, the Venerable Chana emerged from seclusion and, taking his key, interesting, had a key for his hut, huh? Taking his key, went from dwelling to dwelling, saying to the elder bhikkhus, Let the venerable ones exhort me, let them instruct me, let them give me a Dhamma talk in such a way that I might see the Dhamma. And um, it is interesting, it's a very unusual situation. Usually monks go and speak to either their immediate teachers or their preceptors or fellow friends, but they rarely go knocking on various doors, uh, seeking uh, in such a way uh, exhortation and uh, instruction. Um, he seems to have not met with much success initially, 
But after a while, some of the elders got together and instructed him. And they instructed him in those very five khandas I have just spoken of. And he said, they said, form Frenchanda is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. Form is non-self. Feeling is non-self. Perception is non-self. Volitional formation are non-self. Consciousness is non-self. All formations are impermanent. All formations, all phenomena are non-self. Now, <clears throat> as um, aficionados and aficionadas, you will notice of the three characteristics, only two are mentioned here. Yeah? Only impermanence and not-self is mentioned. Dukkha is not mentioned. Which um, our commentators gloss. The reason for this is that these monks knew that Chana was a difficult character. And if they had told him that form and feeling, tone and perception and mental formations and sense consciousness would be are suffering, so they, argue, they argued he would have uh, misunderstood this. He would have argued and said, these people are just offering me a a practice of suffering, a path of suffering, and I am sure the results of that practice will also be suffering. Yeah. So that's why they just left it at impermanence and at non-self. And now it's an interesting part. Then it occurred to the venerable Chana. I too think this way. Form is impermanent. Consciousness, da, da, da. form is impermanent. Feeling, perception, uh, volitional formations. Consciousness is impermanent. And I also think form is non-self, feeling tone is non-self, perception is non-self, uh, volition is non-self, sense consciousness is non-self. All formations are impermanent, all phenomena are non-self. So he says exactly what these people say. He says, I also think this. But my mind does not launch upon the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all acquisitions, the destructions of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana, nor does it acquire confidence, settle down and resolve on it. Instead, agitation and clinging arise in the mind, arise and the mind turns back thinking, but who is myself? And then, beautiful self-reflection, but such does not happen to one who sees the Dhamma. So who then can teach me the Dhamma in such way that I might see the Dhamma? Yeah? So he has he is in this painful position where he actually says, look, I don't disagree with you guys. I too believe this. But it somehow doesn't cut it for me. I'm not getting free. I'm not even getting inspired. I'm not getting... I'm not... This doesn't, this doesn't lift off. Yeah? I don't disagree with you guys. It's just something else is happening. I'm getting nervous. I'm getting anxious. I wonder, where is myself? I'm, I'm afraid. And he acknowledges this. And um, this is very painful. And I have a feeling that he is not the only one that has this experience. You know? We all know to some degree that we're not the owners of our experience. And yet, it's not immediately liberating, isn't it, to know this. It just says, well, I know better, but actually I still want... I still want to go and be somebody. I still want to be some self. I still want to invest in something. I still want a role. I want an identity. 
So I really sympathize with Chana, and I also sympathize with his his take, his his self-reflection says, what comes up in my mind, although I think the same stuff these guys are telling me, what comes up, my anxiety, my clinging, my fretting, and my insistent question, but where is myself, is not indicative of my liberation. I'm getting something wrong here. I need help. I need to call in the pros. Yeah? So he ponders. Then it occurred to the Venerable Achana, this Venerable Ananda is dwelling at Koshambi in Gosita's Park, and he has been praised by the teacher and is esteemed by his wise brethren in the holy life. Venerable Ananda is capable of teaching me the Dhamma in such a way that I might see the Dhamma. Since I have so much trust in Venerable Ananda, let me approach him. Which is quite a thing. If you look where Koshambi is and where Varanasi is, he basically walked 200 kilometers. Yeah, that's 125 miles about. It's something that took him a little more than a day, I can assure you. Uh, what is tacitly assumed here that we understand, uh, it sounds, this guy didn't just live next door, yeah? even though the texts don't let on this. So, what do we see? We see there is a man who is being reluctantly taught something, something that he already knows, but somehow that knowledge does not touch his heart. And he knows that his heart is not touched in the depth necessary to be liberated. And he realizes, I need some other person. I need some other teaching. And he seeks out somebody to whom he has trust. I have so much trust in the Venerable Ananda. Yeah? That's an interesting point. He, he doesn't just hang out there and says, well, I just have to wait or I just have to do more of these practices. No, he, he realizes I need help from somebody in, in whom I have trust, who, can, who is not just famous, but who is also capable of teaching me. And he takes uh, quite a, an, ard uh, an arduous path and uh, goes, visits Ananda, and then seeks out Ananda and basically discloses what has happened. And ends, uh, let the Venerable Ananda exhort me, let him instruct me, let him give me a Dhamma talk in such a way that I might see the Dhamma. So he asks for specific help. Yeah, he says, don't give me generic teachings. I'm sorry, I don't know what causes it. Um, and Ananda is amazing. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful little nugget of therapeutic uh, competence here. Uh, Ananda realizes that the guy doesn't actually need more teaching. He realizes that this man is in doubt of his own capacity to understand because he has already received teaching and he has understood this teaching, but it hasn't touched his heart in a way that he found liberation. So he realizes this man has lost, is in doubt about his own capacity. It's not just that he lacks teaching, he also lacks confidence in his own ability to become free or in, in his own ability even to understand. And again, you will be uh, probably with me on this. Um, many of us, when we practice, we don't actually find obstacles in not having trust or faith in the Buddhist teaching to be the biggest of our obstacles. I would rate the obstacle that we question our own ability to 
ever grow, outgrow the patterns we most overtly suffer from uh, to be bigger. You know? I meet a lot more self-doubt than I meet doubt in the Buddha's teaching. Uh, I meet a lot of self-disparagement in people and actually very little disparagement of Buddha's teaching. You know? If people feel that this is not for them, they generally don't think Buddhism is bad for them or Buddhism just doesn't cut it. They think, I'm not cut out for it. You know, it may, it works. Maybe it works for people who are, who are more gifted or, but I unfortunately have a congenital inability to be mindful. And <laughs> so, Jana is in a very similar situation and Ananda says, I, I am pleased to see you, Venerable Jana. I am pleased to hear you in this way. Even by this much, I am pleased. Perhaps Venerable Jana has opened himself up and broken through his barrenness. Lend me your ear, friend Chana. You are capable of understanding the Dhamma. Yeah? So he gives him textbook validation. He says, look, your, what you call your predicament actually is an indication of healing. Yeah? Your confusion, your acknowledgement that it hasn't worked, and your willingness to seek help, your willingness to come on the basis of faith to me, already is an indication of healing. And I let you know, trust me, you are capable of understanding. And already upon this, even <clears throat> then at once, a lofty rapture and gladness arose in Venerable Channa, as he thought. It seems that I am capable of understanding the Dhamma. Yeah? The Pali says, piti pamoja, yeah? zest and gladness, yeah? which are generally associated with meditative practices. Piti is... Uh, generally an indication that something starts to happen in your meditation practice. So just receiving the statement that he indeed is capable of understanding the Dharma lifts his heart. And upon this, then uh, Ananda realizes that the man is uh, receptive and uh, goes on to teach him and says... Um, I'm giving you a teaching that I have heard in the presence of the Blessed One, um, in the presence uh, of another famous uh, monk whose name is uh, Kachana Gotta. And this teaching is then in full repeated at this point. Uh, don't despair, it's a very short teaching. Um, it's a beautifully uh, crisp and powerful teaching, a teaching that has made it into the Indian Buddhist tradition. It's the only teaching that Nagarjuna quotes in his famous Mulamadyamika Karikas. And this teaching runs very uh, short like this. The Buddha speaking to his fellow practitioner Kajana, this world for the most part depends on a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. For one who sees the origin of the world as it really is, with correct wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. This world, Kajayana, is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging and adherence. But this one with right view does not become engaged and cling through an engagement and clinging, mental standpoint, adherence, underlying tendency. He does not take a stand about myself. 
He has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only suffering, arising what ceases is only suffering ceasing. His knowledge about this is independent of others. In this way, Kajayana, that there is right view. So let me try to paraphrase this very briefly. <laughs> Our friend Chana is struggling with the teaching of not-self. Although he has understood that such a self cannot be found within the five khandas, upon hearing this, his heart still uh, lunges into the question, where is myself then? And the Buddha, or Ananda first, realizes that this man is in doubt about his own capacity and restores the man's faith in his own capacities of understanding. Once this has happened, once the man has experienced piti and pamoja, and uh, then he gives him very pertinently the teaching Kachayanagata received about basically being and non-being. What Buddhist teachings call eternalism, namely the, the affirmation that stuff exists, self exists, God exists, the world exists, and the opposite teaching, namely that things fall into annihilation with death. Yeah. Both of these positions are uh, mutually exclusive and they seem to be also the only possible options. Because if you see things arise, then you're, you're tempted to believe that, yes, this really, this really is happening. If you see things disappear, you're tempted to see, yes, this is really falling into perdition. This is really falling into annihilation. It's disappearing. It can't last. And the, the Buddha neatly sidesteps that and says, look, we don't have a being or non-being question. We have a process of becoming. Yeah? And in that process of becoming, on the basis of conditions, things arise in a process of becoming. And when these conditions fade, that process of becoming also begins to fade. Yeah? So in many ways, the Buddha teaches rather than self being important and either existing or non-existing, that's the fear Chana has. If myself is not in the khandas, then I am afraid, I am prone to annihilation. The Buddha teaches Kachayana Gotha, what arises is not the self, you know, what arises is suffering. And what ceases is not the self, what ceases is suffering. Yeah. So he shifts the emphasis of Kachayana Gotha. And our friend Chana understands this after having had his faith restored in his own capacity to follow the teachings. He, he then, so it is, friend. Yeah? So the, the Kajana Gotha Sutta ends you know, with the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. And Chana responds to Ananda and says, so it is, friend. Indeed, the cessation of this whole mass of suffering is possible for those venerable ones who have such compassionate and benevolent brothers in the holy life to admonish and instruct him. So he says, look, I take your teaching. It's wonderful. It does. I have a breakthrough with your teaching. 
But I am under no illusions that what really cut it for me is that you are compassionate and that you are exhorting me in a brotherly way. That is what did it for me. The teaching is good. I needed that teaching. But really what I needed was you. I needed the relational aspect and your capacity to attend to my needs. So, friend, for those venerable ones who have such compassionate and benevolent brothers in the holy life to admonish and instruct them. And now that I have heard this Dhamma teaching of the venerable Ananda, I have made the breakthrough in my, in my understanding of the Dhamma. So, I think this is a wonderful little nugget. Um, forgive me for not just giving you the straight sutta, but actually teasing out uh, some of the narrative. Um, there are other interesting bits. The commentary claims that the problems Chana had stemmed from the fact that he didn't do his practice in the right sequence. Instead of contemplating the nature of conditionality, he jumped straight away into insight practices on the nature of non-self. And um, this, his weak insight was not capable of actually delivering, deliberating uh, power of, uh, of, of his understanding. His understanding was, although in the, on the right track, it was too weak. And all he was settled with was the loss of what gave him confidence before, but yet he hadn't the confidence in himself or actually had enough of a realization to free himself from the fear and from the seeking of another self, another identity. So I'm telling you this little story, A, because I suspect it is buried somewhere in the depths of the Samyutta Nikaya and it may... I'm not sure whether the Samyutta Nikaya really are your bedtime reading. I have my suspicions about this. And B, I believe there's a profound psychological message in there. Here, Somebody is met by somebody who doesn't just give him a timeless wisdom disquisition, but actually who meets somebody with needs and is capable of meeting those needs, addressing those needs in the sequence needed. And once the person, Jana here, has his faith restored in his own competence and capacity to understand, he is then accessible for those teachings, and these teachings do the job. Yeah. If you feel that the, my treatment of the Kachina Gotha Sutta was too short or too terse, uh, you can always ask John, he has lots to say on this. <laughs> mm. So, what happens here with us? One of the problems that comes uh, with the teaching of Anatta is that this teaching is only one of many teachings the Buddha gives. And that teaching of Anatta is primarily concerned with relating to the notion of a undying substantial core as the essence of our being, as the Vedic tradition referred to it. Um, if we try to make this teaching of Anattata do other things, like taking care of some other habits we have around what we would call selfing, then we conflate the teaching on Anatta. One of the problems with the, and the confusions with Anatta is when the terms 
Atam, meaning Atman or soul originally, becomes translated as self. And this term self has very different connotations in the West. In fact, it's actually quite recent, just to, even in psychoanalysis, it's barely, it's barely 60 years old. Yeah? So I believe it's Hartman who is the first in the 1950s of last century who actually starts outlining a notion of self in psychology or in analytic psychology. And if you know anything about this matter, you know that um, no two, even psychoanalytical, even post-classical psychoanalytic schools agree what such a self is. So if we translate the term Atta, which had a very clear context in the Buddha's time, referring to the Vedic and Upanishadic teaching of a soul that migrated from body to body, and that was the essence of a being, if such a teaching is then translated with self, or more precisely with not-self, we get a real confusion. Because A, we don't know what such a self is. Even if you're into selves, you actually need to really be very, very clear with whom you talk to make sure you stay on the same page. Yeah. A Jungian has a very different notion of a self than a Cahusian or a Gestaltian. Uh, Freud used the term just interchangeably with id, with I. So he didn't even have a proper concept of self. So even in Western psychology, the notion of self is highly problematic. Then there's other guys than, 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 than psychologists who use that term. Charles Taylor wrote a whopping 700-page book on the sources of the self on the basis of sociology. So unless we're clear what we mean by self in a Western context, it really doesn't make much sense to translate a Buddhist teaching with the language that we actually haven't clarified what we mean by Although we're familiar with the word self, we're absolutely not familiar with its connotations. So let me identify three different <coughs> layers that can easily be uh, distinguished. The first layer uh, is self as a psychologically necessary and developmental process. It's a self uh, that I need to learn when I grow up as a human being. Um, I need to establish coherence in what I experience, in what I uh, need, in what I aspire to, in what I understand, in what I identify as goals, in, in what I act towards. In other words, I establish basically becoming a functioning, competent human being that is able to connect what it takes in, a sensory experience, what it understands of this, what it needs, what it sees valuable, what it identifies as goal, and what it does, together with its connects this with its thoughts and its emotions. Yeah. Creating a coherence in one's experience is a developmental task. And as a therapist and as a meditation teacher, I can tell you there is no shortcut out of that task. You cannot sidestep developmental tasks by meditating. Obviously you can try, uh, like, like many of us have. I, I certainly have given it a good shot. Um, but you will soon uh, arrive at a number of problems. One of the problems, to simplify, is that you know when you start to identify such a self with only a part of your experience, 
And when you identify such a self with anything in you, this will be a very partial self. You inevitably will have other parts of your experience that then become a threat and a danger to the part you have identified with as self. So if you've identified with a good Buddhist, with pure mind and noble intentions, then you know every time you feel like uh, a little greedy, this becomes a real problem for you. Yeah? Because not just this is unpleasant, it shouldn't really happen. Yeah? You realize this type of thing shouldn't really happen because after all, you're a good Buddhist. You have noble intentions and a pure heart. You know? And you know the teaching of the Buddha that the mind is intrinsically luminous and pure. So, unfortunately, you still may feel like a greedy bastard sometime, yeah? <laughs> and now you have two problems. A, uh, an overwhelming upsurge of greed, and B, a self that feels murderously threatened by another part that is not part of that self, but that seems also to happen. Yeah? So, any attempt to identify a self on just part of your landscape is doomed to be perilous and to be bringing precarious moments of psychological instability. Sometimes we have such false selves posturing and they, they kind of act or they masquerade as, as primitive forms of self-sufficiency. They say, actually, I don't need this. You know, I'm quite happy as I am. I don't really need you know, success, love, hugs, sex, recognition, safety. I can just, you know, do with very little. I've learned to sleep on a blanket and, you know, life is uncertain. I've just, I'm reconciled with this. Yeah. And there's a good chance that something in you is actually not growing up, is not, is not owning up to the extent you have needs and you are vulnerable and you... Uh, you wish to be safe. Yeah. So false forms of self are very, very detrimental to spiritual practice. And sometimes uh, we use Buddhist jargon to rationalize and corroborate such false notions of self. So developmental tasks cannot be sidestepped. There are no spiritual shortcuts through developmental psychological terrain. Believe me, I've tried. It's crucial that we do our homework, that we learn to identify what we need and what we want, what we're afraid of, what stories we have, how we relate to people. If we're not willing to do this, if we're trying to establish, say, a spiritual self on the basis of uh, relationships or basically meditation obstacles, uh, other people are just making me, my mind unpeaceful, um, Needs I don't have because needs make me so dependent. I don't want to be dependent. I want to be independent. So I better don't have any needs because it's really bad to have needs and not have met them. Yeah. So pre prefer not to have any needs. Uh, this is not a very effective growth position. Yeah. The pole position for growth is not like this. So self as a psychological developmental task is needed, even if you have great faith in the Buddha's teaching on anatata. Then we speak of self as a habit 
which Buddhist teaching doesn't actually cover with the topic of anatta, but it covers it with other topics, say grasping, upadana, mana, conceit, um, forms of ditti, you know, sakaya ditti, the personality view, or uh, activities the Buddha calls eye-making and mind-making, ahankara, mamankara. Yeah? So, Stuff we call in English conveniently selfing. Yeah. Me doing a little bit of selfing just to feel better. I was a little bit vague and diffused this morning, so I find something to get excited about, to get indignant about, to preoccupy me a neat and neatly contextualized problem that is just about solvable and gives me good feeling. Yeah. I do a little bit of selfing with this. Either by getting indignant or by getting excited or by getting obsessed and contracted around a little problem. Yeah? Which, you know, is not going to change the world, but it gives me something to do and I don't have any nagging questions of who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing on this planet for the time I'm wrestling with this particularly neatly contracted problem. Yeah? So this type of activity the Buddha has touched on in many, many different ways has also something to do with what creates suffering. The Buddha is very clear that upadana, grasping, attachment, identification, is a major part of our suffering. Now, I, there are many, many teachings around this, and they have very little to do with anatta. You know, the teaching of anatta doesn't do justice to the psychological processes in there. It's actually quite a coarse teaching in many ways. It's geared to identify forms of belief, postulates of a soul, of an eternal essence. But the psychological stuff is actually covered in much more detail and much more effectively in other forms of teaching, which are unfortunately not uh, well known uh, well, they are known to some degree, but it's, a, it's an insider's club. You know? uh, they're not the most obvious forms, and they need to be tr traced down a little bit. Then finally, we have self as, um, as a personal pronoun. You know? Self as... Um, the term atang is in Pali also a, a reflexive pronoun. If I say I'm shaving myself, then in Pali I'm shaving my atang. Okay? Perfectly harmless use of the term. There are many ways in which atta in the Pali is used as completely use, useful, harmless, everyday language. As we use the word, the pronoun self, not with a capital S, but with a lowercase s. So if we can keep these different uses of self apart, that, that much is already one. One is the belief in an undying soul type self, which is what the Buddha covered with the teaching of Anattata. One is a, a fairly pernicious habit of trying to identify with parts of our experience to feel more safe, to feel more rewarded, to feel less frightened, to feel continuous. This is a big issue and the Buddha has had a lot to say and he says not addressing this issue is creating most of the pain in our lives. The motor for our suffering is in tanha and upadana. And then we have self as a psychological task. Self as something that has to do with growing up, becoming a mature, functioning human being. And I have 
all reason to believe that the Buddha has had such a self. I have all reasons to believe that the Buddha seemed to be a fairly mature and competent human being. He was shouldering lots of difficult things. He created stuff I'm very grateful for, and he lived in difficult and unruly times. Not even his monastics were always nice and, uh, and cooperative. Some of them were quite uh, recalcitrant and uh, obstreperous. And he put up with all this for 45 years, mostly uncomplainingly. Occasionally he walked out on them, but mostly he hung in there. So I have all reason to believe that this man had a very reliable and coherent self, uh, functioning self that allowed him to handle all this. So if we translate the term anatata as not self, let's make sure what we mean by that. Yeah. Let's not say uh, we don't need to do developmental self. We don't need to grow up. We don't need to acknowledge needs or look at our relationships or look at our history or look at our psychological patterning. Yeah. It's not enough to just meditate and try to be peaceful. Yes, it's great. You know, there's lots to be said about awareness and presence of mind. We can dream of the fullness of presence of mind and awareness, but we all know too well there are areas where, we are, where our awareness is currently not available, yeah? where, where it is trapped somewhere in what the Jungians call the shadow, where it's in the dark where our awareness is not available, and we, at some point, will need to begin to be interested in which parts of us don't want to wake up, what these parts want. Yeah? We need to be interested in those parts as well. It's one thing to be interested in the lofty bits, but we also need to be interested in the bits that resist, that hold back, that keep us, you know, that snag us back into patterns that we find unhappy. So, a big rescuer in there is uh, somebody called Sati, mindfulness. And uh, I want to add to the praises uh, to this of, of Sati and end with this. One aspect of Sati is that Sati is capable or that we are capable of shifting the content of our awareness. That's one. If we become aware of having choices where our attention goes, we are capable of making better choices what we attend to. That's first big thing about sati. Second big thing about sati is we have the possibility not just to change the content in the focus of our attention, but we actually have the capacity to change the relationship, the how we attend to something. Instead of habitually and reactively hate things or just fall prey to things or get enamored by things, we can change our way of relating with mindfulness to the stuff that takes place. In other words, if we don't have a choice about the knee pain because it's happening, we can alter our relationship to that knee pain instead of trying to push it aside or deny its existence as long as possible and then uh, antagonize with it and go aversive. We can actually consciously cultivate something like friendliness. Yeah. So that's a very dramatic power that comes with sati. And thirdly, Sati, this is the most challenging part, Sati is capable of sh bringing light into not the object, not the relationship, but the place where from we have the experience. Yeah. In other words, it, 
Sati is capable of bringing light and bringing spaciousness into our self-construct. The more contracted that self-construct is, the more it hurts, the more we're at war with the world. If you're angry, you're having an argument with the universe. Yeah. Sati is capable not just of fiddling and optimizing objects, not just of uh, relating more effectively. Sati is also capable of actually bringing light and space into the place from where we experience. Yeah. Very powerful. Sati is capable of understanding the dynamics in our own experiential center. Now that center is not solid or substantial, it's shifting and changing, but it is quite understandable. It can, it can be awakened. Yeah. Good, enough for tonight. Thank you for your attention. We have some break for walking. Uh, until 8.45 and then uh, the last sitting in here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.